Okay, good evening. Thank you everyone for uh, being here tonight. Uh, I'm Francesco Borghesi from the Italian Studies Department. I'm here to introduce uh, uh, Professor Pertile and later Professor Moses um, for this event which has been organized uh, thanks to Sydney Ideas, the Sydney Intellectual History Network and the Italian Studies Department. Um, Lino Pertile is a Carl Pescosolido Professor of Romance Languages and Literatures at Harvard University and former Geyer Director uh, of Villa Itatti, uh, the Harvard University Center for Italian Renaissance Studies, which he directed between 2010 and 2015. A graduate of the University of Padua in, uh, in Italy, he, uh, where he studied classics and French, he taught Italian literature uh, in France and in Italy between 1964 and 1968 and the uh, United Kingdom uh, from 1968 until 1995 before uh, joining Harvard in uh, 1995 as a professor of Italian literature in the Department of Romance Languages and Literatures. Um, at Harvard, he served as a house master of Elliot House for 10 years until 2010 and was named Harvard College Professor in 2005. This is a special recognition awarded to faculty members who devote their time and energy especially to teaching undergraduates. Uh, from 2010 and 2015, as I've said, he was a director of Villa Itatti uh, in Florence. He has published essays on the French and Italian Renaissance, in particular on Montaigne and, uh, the fr and French travelers to Italy. Um, his research has focused uh, on the Latin and the Italian Middle Ages, especially uh, with a special concern for Dante. The Renaissance, uh, uh, Pertil has worked on Bembo and Trifon Gabriele, and uh, 20th century Italian literature. His books on uh, Dante include the critical edition of the 16th century commentary, Annotazioni nel Dante con Trifon Gabriele, and uh, two uh, uh, monographs, uh, on Dante, one published in 1998 and another one in 2005. He has co-edited and contributed to various volumes on Italian literature from uh, Dante to the 20th century, uh, including the new Italian novel, which was published in 1993, the Cambridge History of Italian Literature, which was published in 1996, and uh, more recently, uh, the collected volume of, the, um, uh, of essays, Dante in Context, published in 2015. So please uh, join me in uh, welcoming Professor Pertile to the University of Sydney. Thank you very much, uh, um, Francesco, for that uh, kind uh, introduction. And and thank you and everyone that I've met in the past uh, uh, 24 hours for uh, a very warm uh, welcome uh, to uh, uh, Sydney and Sydney University. Um, 
Can you hear me? Well, there's no problem. I, this is supposed to be working. Uh, okay. Um, uh, no, I, this is the first time that I come to uh, uh, Australia, the first time to Sydney, and we really are uh, extremely uh, um, taken by the, your country and your universities. When I say we, I include my wife, Anna, who's here with me, and we are both very fortunate to be able to visit these universities at, at this time. Um, coming now to the subject of my lecture, um, uh, poetry and the lager uh, from Dante uh, to Primo Levi. Uh, Primo Levi, entitled uh, Se questo è un uomo, uh, the English, which is the Italian original of the English translation, if this is a man, uh, he entitled, with this particular phrase, his account of the year he spent in uh, Auschwitz, 1944, as you well know. Now, if this is a man, the title uh, is a phrase which derives uh, from a poem by Levy himself, written exactly 70 years ago, and inscribed as an epigraph on the first page of the book. You have it in your handout. Voi che vivete sicuri nelle vostre tiepide case, voi che trovate tornando a sera il cibo caldo e visi amici, considerate, consider if this is a man who works in the mud, who does not know peace, who fights for a scrap of bread, who dies because of a yes or a no. Consider if this is the woman without hair and without name, with no more strength to remember, her eyes empty and her womb cold like a frog in winter. These lines ask a disturbing question. Is there a degree of suffering and degradation beyond which a man or a woman ceases to be a human being, a point beyond which our spirit dies and what survives is pure physiology. And if yes, what resources can we deploy that may be capable of preserving the integrity of our humanity? These are some of the issues I want to reflect on in this paper, with reference to two systems of suffering, the two hells described by Dante in his Inferno and Primo Levi in If This Is a Man. The idea of hell, and in particular Dante's version of it, has been with us for so long that we have grown accustomed to it, with the result that we don't pay enough attention to what actually is the raison d'etre of hell. That is, inflicting physical pain on human beings. Now, Michel Foucault has a sharp distinction between torture and supplice execution, but in French, supplice is something slightly different which can help us to get closer to what perhaps Dante had in mind 
when he wrote this inferno. Both torture and supplice are forms of violence upon the body of the victim. But they are quite different. Torture is a practice conducted in secret in which corporal pain is not an end in itself. Rather, pain is inflicted in order to extract a confession. Suplice is a special form of public torture, which, while always ending in death, does not aim to kill, or, but to humiliate, degrade, and above all, extract as much pain as possible from the body of the victim before he or she dies. The skill of the executioner consists in his ability to balance inflicting the highest pain with the risk of prematurely killing the victim. For once the victim is dead, he or she escapes all pain and all revenge. So the skilled executioner will keep his victim alive as long as possible. Now, it would seem that Dante's Inferno portrays an ideal form of supplice, as described by Foucault, in that, paradoxically, being already dead, Dante's damned can never escape their executioners by dying. From this narrow point of view, Dante's punishments are in fact a never-ending supplice in which the torture and degradation of the body of the condemned are protracted or repeated ad infinitum. The situation in Dante's purgatory is completely different. And I mention this because I want you to realize the difference in the quality, in the nature of the pain involved. The torments of purgatory are freely chosen. Indeed, they are joyfully sought for by the penitents, and therefore they have a beneficial role. Suffering in purgatory relieves the soul of the incrustations of sin and makes it worthy of ascending to heaven, or at least this is what Dante thinks. The pain of purgatory is temporary and active, victorious and joyful. It is a means to an end, not an end in itself. This is why Dante calls it the blessed sorrow that marries us once more to God. He says, il dolor che Dio ne rimarita. On the contrary, on the contrary, hell's pain does not redeem anybody, nor does it teach anything. It afflicts the shades without maturing or changing them. Once they have reached the destination, the souls of Dante's Inferno are in constant pain and they remain constantly vulnerable. Like joy in paradise, pain in Inferno is always fresh and young. It is never allowed to become old and tired. And many shades are portrayed in fear of the pain they anticipate. For example, the squanderers always try to flee the black bitches that pursue them through the wood of the suicides, but they are always caught 
and torn to bits. The violent against God never cease to try and shield themselves with their hands from the falling flakes of fire. But the flakes keep coming, always fresh, always new, always scorching. If we ask how it can be that bodiless souls have feelings as though they had flesh, muscles and bones, Dante replies that the infernal shades have airy bodies, airy bodies that are exactly as sensitive as the bodies that they left behind on earth and that will rejoin them after the last judgment. At that point, Dante tells us, when body and soul will be reunited, the pains of hell, like the joys of heaven, will reach their most appropriate, perfect and definitive intensity. The justice of Dante's God is implacable. Its sentences know neither pardon nor parole. Once begun, they will never end. Thus, hornets and wasps sting the neutrals to the point of making them bleed and worms feed on the blood that trickles down from their wounds. The gluttonous wallow in mud and fetid rain drenches them. The murderers boil in the seething blood of the phlegathon. The suicides have become thorn bushes that the repugnant harpies lacerate and so on and so forth. There is, however, nothing particularly fantastic about Dante's gallery of horrors. Not only are they standard in the existing vision literature, but they are all real and familiar to the world of Dante's readers, accustomed as they are to see human bodies devastated by disease and starvation, or mutilated by enemy swords, or quartered and burnt by executioners on the public square. It is the compelling familiarity with these torments that keeps the dead alive and credible in the imagination of the living. One of the most haunting passages of the Inferno is where the squanderer Lano from Siena is introduced running naked and torn, breaking straight through a a thicket of thorn bushes, pursued by black ravenous bitches, and shouting, Come, come quickly, death! Ora corri, corri morte! Lano is already dead. He's already dead. Of course. But his terror is such that he longs for total death. He is so terrified that he wants to cease existing altogether. But time and again he comes up against what is at once the most comforting and the most terrifying gift Christianity has bestowed to its believers. The indestructibility of human existence. For Christians, and not only for Christians, not Once you are alive, you are alive forever. Death is only a transition. You are alive forever. The astonishing novelty 
of the divine comedy is that while accepting the gravity of the sins and punishing them in the most horrific manner, Dante does not perpetuate the myth of the absolute depravity of the sinners. Instead, far from reducing these sinners to anonymous objects, he enhances their individualities. Ultimately, even in hell, Dante's sinners remain individuals with whom he as character and we as readers entertain a relationship that is not unlike the relationship we have with the living. As they enter the gates of hell, Dante's damned are warned to abandon all hope. Abandon all hope, you who enter here. Lasciate ogni speranza voi che entrate. Paradoxically, however, their loss of hope does not destroy nor diminish their passions. The harrowing torments of hell do not deprive the damned souls of their humanity, nor do they render them apathetic. The Christian idea of the indestructibility of the entire individual entails that passions and emotions after death become clearer and stronger than they ever were before. This is what happens in Dante's Inferno and what the critics mean when they speak of Dante's realism. I want to turn now to Primo Levi's If This Is A Man. Se questo è un uomo. The extermination camps, or lagers, have often been compared to Dante's Inferno. And Dante's Inferno has often served as a model for the portrayal of the death camps. In a famous essay, which appeared 40 years ago, George Steiner wrote, you have the text in the handout, it's a number two, and I abbreviate the passage. The camp, that is the extermination camp, embodies often down to minutiae the images and chronicles of hell in European art and thought from the 12th to the 18th century. It is in the fantasies of the inferno as they literally haunt Western sensibility that we find the technology of pain without meaning, of bestiality without end, of gratuitous terror. The literature of the camps is extensive, but nothing in it equals the fullness of Dante's observations. The concentration and death camps of the 20th century, writes Steiner, wherever they exist, under whatever regime, are hell made imminent. They are the transference of hell from below the earth to its surface. They are the deliberate enactment of a long, precise imagining, because it imagined more fully than any other text, because it argued the centrality of hell in, Western, in the Western order. The Commedia, the Divine Comedy, remains our literal guidebook to the flames, to the ice fields, to the meat hooks. Steiner makes two points. 
First, there is a formal analogy, he says, between Dante's Inferno and the Lager in terms of magnitude, challenge to the imagination, degree of horror, terrifying questions it raises. Second, and more substantial point, the Lager is the concrete realization of a fiction rooted and deeply rooted and widespread in the Western world, of which Dante wrote the best example. So in a sense, what Steiner is saying is that the Lager, Auschwitz, is the materialization of a fiction of which Dante has produced the best example in uh, between 1300 and 1320. Now I'm trying to look at these two points that Steiner makes. As to the first point, the differences seem to me more illuminating than the analogies. For the analogies concern the details, while the differences have to do with the substance. First, a major difference. Unlike Dante's Inferno, the Lager is not there to do justice by punishing the wicked and rewarding the virtues. Nor is it there to teach anything to anyone. It has neither apparent external purpose nor connection with the outside world. As Levy puts it, it is a realm where right and wrong, good and evil, friends and foes, and even us and them are no longer, no longer clearly demarcated. Giorgio Gambin has argued that the extermination camps came into being under the Nazi regime when the state of emergency became normal. That is, when it became legal for the Nazi state to do anything illegal. The camps were portions of the national territory legally placed, out, placed outside the ordinary legal system. That is, outside all the rules of the penal and prison codes. Within this space, everything was not just legitimate and permitted, but actually possible. Anything could happen. Thus, as prisoners arrived to Auschwitz after their long debilitating journey in cruel and humiliating conditions, they feel on the threshold of the darkness and terror of an unearthly place. After going through the violent, terrifying rituals of the arrival, most prisoners are sent to the gas chambers. Some are temporarily kept alive as helpers or workers of this small minority, a tiny group, the lucky few, but often also the tough, unscrupulous and cruel. A tiny group will survive longer than others. The others, the unlucky, the passive, the meek and obedient, will quickly, through forced labor, beatings and starvation, be reduced to what Levy and what was known in the camps, Muslim status, the Muslim status, and be sent to the gas chamber. Now the Muslim, or written exactly like this, the Muslim is the non-man, the human being who cannot feel anything anymore, 
not even pain. It is the extreme expression of camp life. The result of what Levy calls a methodic process of demolition. That's the word that Levy uses. A methodic process of demolition. To demolish a human being means stripping him, her, of human individuality and uniqueness, reducing him to mere biological existence, to the state of staggering corpse. This goal is achieved by depriving the inmate of everything that makes him who he is, family, friends, home, habits, clothes and shoes, even hair and every other possession of his or her, including name. The lager reduces one to an empty shell. A being who only knows suffering and need and has forgotten all dignity. Such a man will submit to any pain and indignity because with the ability to hope and feel anything, he will have lost all sense of his own selfhood and with it the ability to fear. Hannah Arendt describes the lager as a factory of no, a factory conceived for the purpose of producing corpses. However, she identifies the quintessential ontological horror of the extermination camp, not in the mass killings, but in the complete demolition of individual uniqueness. Its outcome she defines as a living corpse, a ghastly marionette with human face. Such a being, precisely because he is no longer a human being, will be eliminated, shot, beaten to death, hanged, gassed, without any qualms, as a mosquito is squashed. Now, compare this to that other late medieval penal colony imagined by Dante Alighieri. Of course, there are major differences. The reality, in inverted commas, Dante describes is a fictional creation in which the poet imagines that God's judgment is implemented. In this vision, or nightmare, the wicked and unrepentant are punished, the weak and repentant are cleansed and purified, and the pure and saintly are rewarded. Now, this is a pretty positive picture of human history. It is true that Dante's inferno punishes its inmates ferociously, tormenting and torturing them unceasingly, but it is grounded on and gives expression to a culture and a society in which it is considered normal to punish sinners, torture and burn heretics and witches, starve traitors, and so on and so forth. We might find it repugnant, but it is not a perversion of justice. On the contrary, Levy is a witness who asks this re or his readers uh, to be judges of what he reports. The reality that he describes is historically documented. It is an experience that he lived personally and which says to us, this is what human beings have done and are capable of doing to each other in this life and in this world. At the same time, this reality tells us something that is very important 
about Dante's realism. Levi calls drowned, sommersi in Italian, literally submerged, the non-man, the mild, helpless, musulmaner, who took away with them their experiences of the death camps when they died there. For him, they are the only true witnesses who did not survive to tell their stories. He calls saved, i salvati, the survivors, the strong, clever, or fortunate enough to emerge alive from the lager and in some cases bear witness. The two terms, drowned and saved, sommersi and salvati, are derived from Dante's Inferno, where they designate respectively the damned, who are confined forever in hell, and the saved, who are already in heaven, or, with eventually, or, who, or, or who will eventually be there. Thus, Levi turns Dante's nomenclature upside down, emphasizing with bitter irony how Nazi justice, in inverted commas, condemns the good and spares the wicked. The lager is a perverse, grotesque parody of Dante's hell, in that it employs infernal structures in order to punish the innocent and reward the guilty. In history, as in life, Levy observes, one sometimes seems to glimpse a ferocious law which states, to he that has will be given, from he that has not will be taken away. However, the real difference between the two regimes is even more profound. In Dante's hell, men and women fully realize through suffering the essence of their identities. They become more than ever who they actually are, far from erasing their names and reducing them to anonymous numbers. Dante fills each soul with his or her historical and psychological character. These characters do not change with time. They neither progress nor regress. They are what they are. That state of being is their sentence, their ontological horror. If this is a man, Davis' book offers a very different testimonial on the effects of suffering. In the lager, most inmates are annihilated as individuals well before their physical existence is reduced to a fistful of ashes. This is something that Dante neither understood nor anticipated. Dante did not understand that pain, cruelty, violence destroy all humanity in human beings. Humiliation, deprivation, abuse and torture rapture man's psychophysical unit. They do not enhance, refine and realize it. Looking back at it from the vantage point of view of the death camp, Dante's realism, albeit poetically, poetically very effective, seems in reality naive. I'd like to address now Steiner's second point. 
namely that the lager is the concrete realization of a fiction of which Dante wrote the best example. Memories of Dante's Inferno are common in Levi's book, in This is a Man. But we must assume that they occurred to Primo at the time of writing his account, rather than when he actually lived the events narrated in it. However, there is one major exception to this rule. A case in which a canto of the inferno becomes the protagonist of the actual story. It is the chapter entitled The Canto of Ulysses. A title which applies equally to the 11th chapter of Levi's book and to Canto 26 of Dante's Inferno. Now you may remember what happens in the 11th chapter of Levi's book. On a bright morning of June 1944, Primo, Primo Levi and Jean, the piccolo of Primo's commando, and the piccolo is an important position in the hierarchy of the camp's prominence, so Jean and, and, and Primo are walking together on their way to fetch the soup from the camp's kitchen. Each one of them holds a wooden pole with which, on their return, they will carry back the heavy pot of soup. Jean is bilingual, French and German, but he wants to learn Italian as well. It's a beautiful morning. The sun is shining. They see in the distance the Carpathians. Primo thinks of the Alps. They talk about homes, mothers, and things of this kind together. And Primo, there and then, decides to start teaching Italian to Jean. And begins to say, Zuppa, Campo, Acqua. And Jean repeats, Zuppa, Campo, Acqua. Then suddenly, suddenly, something happens. The episode of Ulysses from Dante's Inferno comes to Primo's mind. A school memory. A memory from school. And Primo starts reciting it. Translating it into French and explaining to Jean the disconnected fragments he struggles to recall. He doesn't remember the whole episode. He remembers only bits and pieces, but what he remembers, he recites it back to Jean. In this episode, Ulysses tells Dante how, after leaving Circes near Gaeta in southern Italy, instead of sailing home to Ithaca, he pointed his ship westward in search of a new uninhabited world. After passing beyond the pillars of Hercules, now known as the Strait of Gibraltar, of course, he continued sailing for five months on the open sea until, just as he and his crew cheered the sight of a brown mountain in the middle of the ocean, say, Tasmania or Australia. A hurricane arose from this mysterious island which came and smashed 
the ship and they all drowned. That is how the episode ends. But the memory of Dante's Ulysses moves Primo profoundly. But memory by itself is not enough to explain his excitement. What makes the difference is the sharing of that memory. The sense of reaching another person's mind with one's own words. This is what is so intellectually thrilling and energizing. It transforms the Essen Hollen, the menial chore of fetching the daily soup, into an exhilarating journey back to his true self. A journey which, for a few moments, cancels the horrors of the lager. The episode could hardly be more extraordinary. A few lines of poetry have the power to liberate Primo's mind from Auschwitz. Why? What happens? Clearly, Primo does not identify with the suffering, Ulysses. There is no word in the episode that Ulysses is actually in hell. But Primo does not identify with a character who is suffering in hell. He identifies with the hero who, before anything else, places his freedom to go and explore beyond every limit and barrier. It is the line, Mamisi me per l'alto mare aperto, so on the open sea I set forth. This is the line that at first rouses Primo's most intense emotion. It is the image of that open sea without limits or borders. The idea of breaking a chain, of launching oneself al di là di una barriera, on the other side of a barrier. This is what excites Primo on that morning. But there are other elements as well which are extremely interesting. Here in the death camp, as he shares his memory with John, Primo appreciates in Dante's text details he had never noticed before. Not even at school. Details of vocabulary and syntax. Modest discoveries which now move and excite him. If you read or reread the episode, you see what Primo says, ah, it's a consecutive, close, consecutive, because how exciting. He doesn't say molto, he says tanto, tanto. So details of vocabulary and syntax, which now move and excite him as if he were a free man working at his desk at home and not a, a heftling waiting to pass through the chimney at Auschwitz. But why do these details strike him so profoundly, if not because, in a strange way, they are about him, about his identity and his dignity as a human being? What happens here is truly remarkable. Six centuries after their composition, a few lines of medieval Christian poetry raise a young Italian Jew above the evil power that wants to eliminate him as a human being. Primo's memory is intermittent, as I mentioned before. He recalls some fragments, not the entire passage. Now and again, he comes to gaps that he is unable to fill. There is a point, however, that he recalls with absolute clarity 
It is the most thrilling part of the story. The passage where Ulysses addresses his shipmates before they sail into the unknown. You have the text in your handout. Here, listen Piccolo. Open your ears and your mind. You have to understand for my sake. And here he quotes Dante. Considerate la vostra semenza. Fatti non foste a vivere come bruti, ma perseguire virtute e conoscenza. Consider your origin. You were not made to live like beasts, but to pursue virtue and knowledge. As if I also was hearing it for the first time. This piece of literature, this piece of poetry has an effect on Primo on, in, at Auschwitz as though he was hearing it for the first time. Like the blast of a trumpet, like the voice of God. For a moment I forget who I am and where I am. What is it that Primo hears? What is the trumpet that wakes him from the nightmare in which he is actually immersed? It is that phrase, considerate la vostra semenza. Literally, consider your seed, which today, as he translates it into French for his friend John, strikes him with a new energy on an overwhelming evidence. Considerate la vostra semenza means think who you are, where you come from, what you are made of. In other words, think that you are human beings and to be human means to live a life that chooses good over evil virtue over vice right over wrong beauty over ugliness it means having an intellectual life to that is a mind actively engaged in searching questioning analyzing comparing assessing judging in accordance with the rules of reason and logic this is what primo hears today while Dante's words come to his lips. Thanks to those words, far from forgetting who he is and where he is, Primo rediscovers within himself the human being he feared dead. He rises above his torturers, asserting his irrepressible humanity. And here we come to the fourth passage. And the text, Dante's text says, Joyful were we, and soon it turned to weeping, for out of the new land a whirlwind rose and smote upon the forepart of the ship. And three times, here's your text, and three times it made her world with all the waters. At the fourth the stern rose and the prow went down as pleased another. Come trui piacque, says the Italian, as pleased another. I keep Piccolo back, writes, writes Primo. It is vitally necessary and urgent that he listen, that he understand this as pleased another before it is too late. Tomorrow he or I might be dead or we might never see each other again. I must tell him, I must explain to him about the Middle Ages, about the so human and so necessary and yet unexpected anachronism, but still more something gigantic that I myself had only just seen in a flash of intuition, perhaps the reason for our fate, for our being here today. Here poetry 
displays its full power. It becomes revelation. Primo identifies totally with a Ulysses who falls while affirming his dignity and freedom in the face of an unknown, overbearing and envious God. In Ulysses' tragic fall, he sees prefigured his own destiny and the destiny of all persecuted peoples. As the waters of the ocean close, as pleased another. Over the body of the Greek hero, Primo intuits something he had never perceived before, a true epiphany, which lets him catch a glimpse of the tragedy of an entire race, where before there was just an individual drama. But what did Primo see? What is the gigantic idea that has struck him? As Levy suggests, as Levy himself suggests, it is this, I think, the God, Dante's altrui, who, unknown to Ulysses, destroys him just before he lands on the island of earthly paradise, is the same who is bent on destroying the Jewish people in the Nazi camps. What motivates God in both cases is not the guilt of his victims, but their intelligence, their pride, what Levi calls their intellectual acutezza, or intellectual sharpness. Thus Dante's Ulysses become, in Primo's eyes, the symbol of a human search for knowledge that triggers the wrath of God in the form of the Nazi persecution. This, I think, is what Primo understands from the broken verses he can remember. And this is why he would willingly give up his superation for the sake of remembering a few more words, enough to fill the gaps in his memory. Those words have become more important than soup. They are food for Primo's starving spirit, a balm to heal his devastated humanity, and a key for understanding the enormity of what is happening there and then. But his journey is over, and as Dante's Ulysses sinks, Primo joins the soup queue among the sordid, ragged crowd of soup carriers from other Commandos. Consider if this is a man, writes Primo Levi on the first page of his book, echoing, not by chance, the first line of Ulysses' stirring, stirring, stirring appeal. Considerate la vostra semenza. You see where this comes from. Now we see the depth from which the title of Levi's book emerges what it means and how it really is the key to understanding not just his story, but his experience of the hell of Auschwitz. Dante's Ulysses reminds his companions that they are men, not brutes, and Levi asks up to what degree of suffering and degradation a man can keep his humanity, if he still is a man, a man who works in the mud, who does not know peace, who fights for a scrap of bread, who dies because of a yes or a no. If she is still a woman, a woman without hair 
and without name, with no more strength to remember, her eyes empty and her womb cold like a frog in winter. To this solemn and terrifying question, Levi, as a convinced believer in the redemptive power of humanistic culture, replies that, yes, they are a man and a woman so long as a few lines of poetry in their minds can bear witness to their humanity. Ultimately, those words will give them the strength to resist and survive the Nazi assault on humanity. Forty years later, in 1987, in an essay entitled significantly The Intellectual in Auschwitz, Levy declared, text number five, culture was useful to me. Not always, at times perhaps by subterranean and unforeseen paths, but it served me well and perhaps it has saved me. After 40 years I'm reading in Sequesto e un uomo the chapter entitled Il Canto di Ulisse. Well, what I wrote, I would give today's soup to know how to join one part of the poem to the other. I had neither lied nor exaggerated. I would really have given bread and soup, that is, blood, to save from nothingness those memories which today, with the sure support of printed paper, I can refresh whenever I wish and gratis, and which therefore seem of little value. Then and then they had great value. They made it possible for me to re-establish a link with the past, saving it from oblivion and reinforcing my identity. They convinced me that my mind, although besieged by everyday necessities, had not ceased to function. They elevated me in my own eyes and those of my interlocutor. They granted me a respite, ephemeral but not habitudinous, in fact liberating and differentiating, in short, a way to find myself. This is then Primo Levi's answer to George Steiner's point about the connection between Dante's Inferno and the extermination camp. Levi incorporates in his account a piece of Dante's Inferno, but he does so for reasons that are opposite to those suggested by Steiner. For Levi, Dante's Inferno is not a medieval ancestor of the Lagar, but an antidote to it. In Dante's Inferno, Levi finds a way out of the horror of the Lagar and the courage to resist the systematic demolition of humanity perpetrated by the Nazi. Now, almost all Dante scholars today will tell you that Levi's positive reading of Dante's Ulysses was plainly wrong. I don't agree with that reading, but I said almost all Dante scholars. This is not just another academic debate. For Levi found in that Ulysses something more precious than food. And yet he was wrong, scholars say. The question is, had Levi read Ulysses correctly? 
Would he have found the strength to fight back and survive? This is a complicated question that cannot be discussed without going further into the debate. And I will do so very, very briefly. No doubt, Levi decontextualizes Dante's Ulysses, the image that stirs Primo and that he is eager to convey to his prison mate Jean, is of a generous Ulysses who asserts his freedom to go and search the world beyond any restriction, tie or barrier. Searching for something that only later becomes clear. This is the hero he identifies with. And this is the thought that allows him to rise above Auschwitz on that morning of June 1944. This means, of course, that for Levy, though he may be in hell, Ulysses is not a drowned, is not a submerso. The sufferings of hell have not affected his spirit, let alone demolished it. For Levy, Ulysses is a tragic hero who succumbs but does not submit. A hero who triumphs in the very instant in which he seems to be utterly defeated. There is something paradoxical about this interpretation. Where reality numbs and kills the reality of the lager, poetry saves. With this account of one year in the extermination camp, Primo Levi implicitly shows how literary, in a sense, how unrealistic realism can be, including Dante's realism. At the same time, with the Ulysses chapter, he seems to prove how essential literature can be when the survival of our humanity is at stake. Now I'd like to finish here with these words of optimism. But this is not the end of the story. There are other survivors, I'm sure you know, survivors of the lager, who do not share Levi's optimism. For instance, Jean Améry, just to mention one, argues that high culture was of no use in the lager. On the contrary, the intellectual had a harder time and was more easily demolished than the less cultured inmates. He makes it quite clear that between a bowl of soup and a piece of literature, he, that is Jean Améry, he would definitely have picked the soup. However, the issue with Levy's reading is another. As every other religion, the religion of poetry finds its adepts everywhere. And they can be both good and bad. We cannot forget that those who designed and managed the extermination camps were great lovers of poetry, of poetry and art, and that probably they too would have been moved by Dante's verse, just as Primo was. 
Indeed, it has been argued that the humanistic literature that provides Levy with a moment of respite and intellectual excitement in the lager is complicit in the violence of the lager and ultimately responsible for the ideology that produced it. This is a strong view, inspired by Horkheimer and Adorno's critique of the Enlightenment and of the Homeric Ulysses as its archetype and standard bearer. This view maintains that, while seemingly bringing comfort and relief to the devastated humanity of the lagering mates, high culture, and Dante's Ulysses in particular, legitimates the system of the lager. By quoting Dante in the lager, Levy, it is being said, unwittingly places himself on the side of those who put him in there. I do not subscribe to this view. Far from bringing on forgetfulness, Dante's rousing verse awake a consciousness and sense of personal identity that the camp had almost obliterated in Primo and Jean. Ulysses' Oration Picciola is really brief speech, rescues Primo and Jean from a dangerous state of apathy. Rather than a consoling and numbing effect, poetry encourages them to resist the Nazis' attempt to demolish them. And I come to the end. However, though he never seems to have changed his mind in Dan on Dante's Ulysses, Levi's view of Dante's hell became more complex with the passing of time. Having reread the Inferno and thought about it, Levi points to disturbing analogies between the Lager and Dante's Hell. In an interview he gave in, a, in 1987, he notes the, quote, useless violence, unquote, inflicted upon the submersi in both the Lager and the Inferno. The example he offers is one in which on Dante's request, Friar Alberigo tells his story and then Dante refuses to free Alberigo's eyes of the eyes that locks them shut to the point that he is unable to weep. This episode ends on the famous line in which Dante quite casually justifies the, to his reader his decision not to keep his promise. A cortesia fu lui esser villano, writes Dante, and to be rude to him was courtesy. In his turn, Levi explains, in other words, it was Dante's duty to be pitiless. And then he adds, quotation number six in your handout, what as fervent Catholic Dante felt towards the damned who have lost all right of appeal and are made to suffer, was perhaps analogous to the attitude that the Nazi took towards the Jews. They felt that the Jews had to be made to suffer the greatest suffering possible. No doubt there are some episodes in Dante's Inferno in which the damned are treated as no man on account of their abominable sins. In these cases, Dante's Inferno does seem to be more like the Lager's model and Dante's religious fervor analogous to the fervor of the Nazi guards. It seems then that for the Levy of 1987, not the Levy of 1947, two souls who exist in Dante, 
one which escapes hell by affirming his humanity, and another submits to the order of hell by accepting its violence. Perhaps then, it is not by pure coincidence that, having survived the camp but feeling defeated by the memory of it, Levy decided to end his life in the same year, 1987. Perhaps he did so because he no longer believed in the power of literature to save him and justify his life. Perhaps he no longer believed in humanity. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Lino, for a beautiful and compelling lecture. I would like to um, introduce now our respondent, who needs no introduction, I suppose, around here, but he's been away a little bit. Um, So Dirk Moses is a professor of modern history here at the University of Sydney, Um, and uh, um, he uh, raised in Brisbane. He was uh, educated at the University of Queensland, St. Andrews, Notre Dame, and he earned his PhD at uh, the University of California at Berkeley um, before coming to Sydney in 2000. He was a research fellow at the University of Freiburg, uh, where he worked on post-war German debates, uh, a project that appeared in 2007 as German Intellectuals and the Nazi Past. Um, all the while, Dirk has pursued a parallel interest in genocide in colonial context, on which he has published many articles, book chapters, and edited books, including Empire, Colony, Genocide, Conquest, Occupation, and Subaltern Resistance in the War His- in World History, published in 2008, the Oxford Handbook of Genocide Studies, uh, edited with Donald Bloxham in 2010, and Colonial Counterinsurgency and Mass Violence, The Dutch Empire in Indonesia, published in 2014 with Bart Lutikus. Between 2011 and 2015, Dirk was a professor of go- global and colonial history at the European University, University Institute in Florence, and in 2010, he was a fellow at the Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson International Center for um, Scholars in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, for his project on the diplomacy of genocide. Um, for his critical intellectual history of the genocide concept, he spent 2008 as a fellow at the Centrum for Zeithistorische Forschung in Potsdam, and 2004-2005 as, as a fellow at the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies in Washington, D.C., once again. So uh, please uh, uh, join me in, in saluting uh, Dirk. Thanks very much for the generous uh, introduction, uh, Francesco, and of course for the invitation to to uh, share some thoughts on this terrifically rich uh, but also disturbing uh, lecture or lecture that deals with disturbing material from Professor Pertili this evening. Now, Professor Pertili asked these questions from the beginning and I'll repeat them now so it's fresh for us all. And I quote him, Is there a degree of suffering and degradation beyond which a man 
or a woman ceases to be a human being, a point beyond which our spirit dies and only pure physiology survives. And to what extent, if any, may literary culture be capable of preserving the integrity of our humanity? And then we heard uh, a, a very uh, elegant um, uh, and complex uh, discussion of the way Dante interprets, sorry, Dante is interpreted by Primo Levi to answer these questions. These are wide-ranging and disturbing questions and they're not, strictly speaking, historical. And I'm an historian, as you heard, and therefore very conscious of my limitations. I'm not a theologian, and there are theological elements to these questions. Uh, we have Avril Alba from Jewish Studies, who's a trained theologian in Jewish and Christian theology uh, here, who could be up before you answering them. I'm not an ethicist, although there are ethical questions here. And we have uh, Daniel Selemeyer from Sociology, who's written a lot on Hannah Arendt, and she too, and Jewish ethics, could be here before you to discuss these questions. I'm not an expert in Italian culture and literature, although I lived in Italy quite recently, as you saw, and I bought this terrific coat there. Uh, <laughs> uh, they like bright colours in Italy. Um, my historian colleague, Marco Duranti, who in fact took a class with Professor Pertilli at Harvard, when he was an undergraduate uh, several years ago, um, is the local expert on Italian culture, as well, of course, as the colleagues in Italian studies. My own expertise, as you heard, is specifically in post-war Germany and in post-war European intellectual culture more generally. So as an historian, I want to make two brief historical moves right now. The first is that we recall that others have already posed and answered in their own way the questions that Professor Pertilli put to us. And he mentioned some of them already, I remind you. Let's recall that Theodor Adorno, the German-Jewish emigre scholar, wrote, and I quote him, all culture after Auschwitz, including its urgent critique, is garbage. He also made that famous quotation about uh, no more poetry after Auschwitz, which is related. Somewhat more vulgarly, Bertolt Brecht, the famous German playwright, he said the mansion of culture is built of dog shit. It, is, uh, it was uh, George Steiner who said that we know now that a man can read Goethe or Rilke in the evening and he can play Bach and Schubert and go to his day's work at Auschwitz in the morning. And we heard uh, similar quotations to that effect in the talk just a few minutes ago. This is a view that P Professor Pertilli rejects. Now what was their point? The point is that that high culture as somehow a humanising or elevating uh, endeavour is bankrupt. Indeed, an offensive idea um, after the, a putatively civilised nation like Germany inflicted the hell of the death camps on Europe and particularly targeting European Jewry, among them Primo Levi, who miraculously survived. Now, they were making these statements in the 1950s and the 60s. Now, why, why did they feel like that? They viewed with disgust the, in, the re-establishment of Europe, the belief in European high culture, opera, you know, the university system, uh, literature and so forth, uh, and its veneration, uh, without a critical appraisal of its own implication in what had just gone on a few years before. Typical among them, was the famous German historian Friedrich Meinecke, who pathetically suggested that the way Germany should 
deal with its Nazi past was to revive belief in Goethe. The problem was that uh, Goethe's ideals had been forgotten and that we should establish in small towns around Germany Goethe societies and re-read Goethe and somehow this would uh, regenerate German culture after the barbarism of the camps and of course the Nazi regime more generally. Now that was the, the atmosphere and also the very clerical atmosphere of um, bourgeois Europe in the 1950s and early 60s. Now at the same time, none of these figures was anti-culture. In his negative dialectics, Adorno completed the above quotation about culture being garbage by saying, at the same time, the man who says no to culture is directly furthering barbarism, which our culture has shown itself to be. So there's a tension there. Now that's my first point. Because Levy shares this ambivalence or tension. Now my second historical move is the following. Let's recall that Primo Levi's breakthrough in the English-speaking world, he was always already famous in Italy, but in the English-speaking world was really only in the 1980s, in the mid-1980s, um, somewhat after the prominence of famous survivor authors like Elie Wiesel, who recently passed away, and of course Simon Wiesenthal, who died uh, 11 years ago. Now there are two issues here in this, the timing of this reception. The first is that the American publishers of... Uh, another famous book by Primo Levi, The Periodic Table, insisted that he remove material that was not directly related to what it called the Italian Jewish spirit experience of the Holocaust because the publisher feared that his other interests were, were, were not sufficiently interesting for an American audience, particularly American Jewish audience, for whom Eli Wiesel was becoming the iconic and authentic voice of Holocaust memory with its sacral qualities developing at the time. An American reviewer praised Is This a Man, which was translated in America's survival in Auschwitz to invest the experience with some redemptive qualities which that Levi never intended, Levi never intended. Even so, for some reviewers, he was still not Jewish enough. For example, Fernanda Eberstadt, writing in commentary, was disturbed by uh, the, distressing, the stressing of the universal aspect of the Holocaust Levy here being true to the secular and humanistic tradition of Italian Jewry, quote, end of quotation. It was no accident that Eli Wiesel himself announced his differences with Primo Levi, writing in his own autobiography in 1999 the following, and I quote Eli Wiesel, yes, we had our disagreements. In my own way, I'm a believer. He declared himself an atheist. I persist in wanting to work from within our tradition, Jewish tradition. He kept his I did not share his leftist tendencies, just as he distanced himself from my attachment to Israel. And then I thought he was too severe with survivors. End of quotation. Now, what was he talking about? And this is now my second point within the second point. His Anglophone success was preceded by intense controversy because Levy had protested the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982 and condemned Menachem Begin's government in Israel. Wiesel was also horrified by Levy's inclination to analogize between the Nazi experience and the criminal regimes that he witnessed around him in the post-war period. Now I now quote Primo Levi. I am not inclined to forgive, and I never forgave our enemies at the time. And here he's uh, uh, responding to Jean Amari, another survivor author who didn't like his sober prose style, which he thought let people off the hook. Now, I 
continue with Primo Levi. But nor do I feel I can forgive their imitators in Algeria, Vietnam, the Soviet Union, Chile, Argentina, Cambodia and South Africa because I know of no human act that can erase a crime. Now this was the Primo Levi that the US publishers did not want to hear. Yet these cosmopolitan commitments to human rights and anti-imperialism were intrinsic to the Italian, Jewish, secular, leftist culture to which he belonged. Taken together, Levy's writings and activism suggest answers to Professor Pertili's questions. I think Levy would agree with Adorno and Brecht. The belief in an apolitical high culture that somehow elevates us and inoculates us from the capacity to commit genocide or even engage in lesser evils in the name of sovereignty, for example, locking people up on islands uh, who were refugees, is indeed a fiction and indeed a dangerous one. This is not the humanism to which he adhered and that he embodied with his comrade. Let's not forget that he was captured by an Italian fascist militia, I think in 1943, during the war as a member of a leftist partisan resistance force, that is against the Nazis and the, the fascist regime. His humanism sought to construct or reconstruct a humanism that engaged in questions of collective and global justice. Now reminding you of this dimension of Levy is not an act of partisan advocacy on my part. These are just the facts. Elie Wiesel is perfectly accurate about his differences with Levy. The question for us is which one of these figures best answers P Professor Patili's troubling questions? And that's for you to decide individually. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Dirk. Um, I would just like invite questions from the public, so I would also ask you both back here at the lectern. Hello. I'm the one who was in Professor Pertula's uh, Divine Comedy class. It was very special. Um, brings nostalgia. So um, my question was about Piccolo and Primo, and why is it that in that passage from If This Is a Man, that Primo Levi says that even though Piccolo didn't understand Italian, he somehow understood what Primo Levi was saying. He somehow understood Dante. And not just the passage from the Canto of Ulysses, but also when Primo Levi is trying to explain the structure of Inferno, which I think is important because I think it's a moment in which he is able or almost able to bring a sense of order and a sense of a kind of ethical logic to the universe around him and one that has been lost, right? Because in the beginning of um, the book, he talks about this Cartesian world he lived in as a scientist and that is lost in the camp. So why is it that um, either, why is it just in fact that Piccolo seems to understand? Uh, and Or why is it that Primo Levi tells us this and believes this, it does it have something to do with what you said, that the divine comedy is somehow part of the very fabric of our, of our broader kind of culture, uh, something of our, of our civilization, is that, that somehow there's this intuitive understanding of, of that, is it, or is it a sense of a common humanity that it brings out? What, what 
Well, I think that um, we can only um, hypothesize. We, we have no definitive answer to this question. Your answer is as good as mine. But I think that what Levy is trying to convey there is the sense of um, sympathy and of warmth, of togetherness that uh, uh, comes around when um, Piccolo, Jean, uh, warms up to uh, Levy's excitement. Levy gets very excited in the way in which he describes, you know, he gets very excited by the memories of Ulysses, of this passage of literature, he gets very excited then. And, uh, Piccolo realizes this, and even if he doesn't understand what everything that he says, that he says, he actually uh, encourages him, and because he's, he's sort of basking in that sense of excitement that is so different, so unusual, so unheard of in that environment, what is what Piccolo is witnessing that there is something really prodigious, miraculous, something never happened. And he understands that. And, and he's willing, in a sense, to go along with, uh, with, uh, with Primo. I don't think that th there is an implication that Jean understands exactly what Primo is talking about. No, no. He understands that Primo is having this extraordinary trip, this extraordinary experience, this psychological trip. And he, he wants to He's enjoying it himself. So there is extraordinary togetherness there. This is how I interpret it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I had a, a, a couple of just slightly different readings. Um, one around what seems to me to be a really critical difference between. Dante and the Lager that, that is relevant to the reading of Dante, which, which is a point that Hannah Arendt makes elsewhere in on totalitarianism, where she says, even the criminals were better than the Jews because there was some there was there was some sense of one's actions having meaning, that one was punished for one's actions. Yeah, whereas for the yeah. Jews it was irrespective of what one did, one was neither guilty nor innocent. And so all distinctions, lawful, unlawful, had, had no meaning anymore. Right. Whereas whether we're talking about the inferno or about purgatory, there is some sense of a connection between one's actions and the consequences, yeah. even if those consequences are eternal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so perhaps it was partly for that sense of a reaching to a world where however infinite the punishment was, it was still a punishment where one's humanity counted, where when, when one banged on the table a noise came out, as opposed to there being you know, a movement for which there was absolutely no consequence. So that's, that's one part of it. But the other, the other um, response that I had is that what seems to be really critical in this passage is not that it's high culture, but that it's a connection with, with another narrative 
of, of an ongoing human story. And what I'm thinking of is other stories where, where Jews said that as long as they could know when the Shabbat was, they could survive. Yeah. It was when they lost, when no longer they knew when Shabbat came in. So whether it's not, it's not, doesn't seem to me that it's about culture or non-culture, high culture or low culture, that it's about that connection with a broader narrative which gets completely lost in the camp. Yes, well, I'm in total agreement with your first point, and which I, I tried to make it. Perhaps I didn't convey it clearly enough, but that is something that I tried to say in, in my presentation. Um, the second question is you know, the notion of high culture and low culture are notions that are obviously debatable um, and uh, the levies the memory of the country you is a memory of, of school. It was uh, standard in Italian schools at the time and later for uh, students to learn by heart certain passages of the Divine Comedy. And one of them was the Ulysses episode. This is the reason why um, Levy remembers or remembers bits of it. The, the, this way of teaching or of sharing the Divine Comedy with the students had uh, the problem that it permitted or encouraged a process of decontextualization so that it doesn't seem to uh, come to Levi's mind that the Ulysses he's talking about is a character in Dante's hell, a suffering character. There is no reference to the suffering Ulysses. Ulysses in Dante's hell is wrapped up in flame, in a flame, and you, can't, you don't see his face because he lives inside a flame, all right? Forever. Uh, so he's burned forever. Um, so he suffers forever. Um, but there is no mention of this in the episode. So Levi suppresses, I don't think he suppresses it, he forgets about it completely, simply because when he studied Ulysses, he studied in isolation from the rest of the, the Divine Comedy. He comes out with a different, more, I would say, a nuanced view of Inferno later on when he rereads it and comes to terms with a different reality that is more complex than that. So, yeah, uh, this is what I would say about that particular Ulysses. Could I add something to, perhaps as a, in the form of a question, to Dan Telemeyer's second Is it the case, Professor, you can help us here, in The Drowned and the Saved, so in the other, the later book from the 80s, mm -hmm. Primo Levi suggests that those who survive were those with very strong religious or political commitments. Yeah. Um, yeah, Orthodox Jews, communists, for example, and those that had sentimental commitments to um, European high culture, your average Central European Bildungsburger were the ones to perish first, because as soon as there's this cultural environment 
was taken away from them, the resources were lacking. Uh, they weren't they weren't as intense as intensely experienced as religion and communism as a secular religion. Is that is that in the drowned in the say? I think so. I yeah. think it's in the drowned in the yeah. say. Yeah. 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 So that that does call into question the the role of the role of you know a belief in humanity and culture that that's at the center of discussion now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, the uh, Levy makes a different point in Supposed Normal. This is a man when he speaks about the lowest of the low being the more likely to survive in the, 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 the tortures of the of the camp because they are used as proxies or as mediators for the distribution of of, of pain. Uh, by the Nazis, so um, in, in the sense, uh, the, the 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 saved uh, or, or the damned were the good ones, and the saved were the bad ones. And ultimately, I think that Levy was unable to survive this kind of label that was attached to him for the rest of his life, yeah. because he, 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 he it was a, in a sense he was responsible of of having survived. Is he felt responsible having survived the experience of the, 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 the lager. But beyond this, I wanted to say something uh, to um, David here, and I wanted to quote the beginning of the... I wanted to quote the beginning of Horkheimer and Adorno's uh, Dialectic of Enlightenment, where they say that the Enlightenment, understood in the widest sense as the advance of thought, has aimed at liberating human beings from fear and installing them as masters. Okay. And then he continues to say something very, very interesting. Yet, the holy enlightened earth is radiant with triumphant calamity. It's talking about what? Radiant is very suggestive of the atomic bomb that has just been brought from the ocean. Now, what is extraordinary is that 600 years before Dante had written exactly the same at the beginning of the canto, of the canto 26 of uh, of, uh, of, of Inferno, the canto of Ulysses, and the whole point about Dante's Ulysses is that is is to expose the danger of human intelligence. Okay, that becomes suicidal human intelligence ends up by committing a kind of suicide. Uh, it, Dante says that these lines are from Canto 26 of Inferno are these. Um, in my opinion, for, forecasting, in a sense, the critique of uh, culture, high culture, or intelligence that was to come much later in the post-enlightenment period. Dante says, I grieve them. Here Dante is writing, Canto 26, he's beginning to talk about Ulysses, and he says, I grieved then, I grieved when I saw them, and now I grieve again as my thoughts turn to what I saw, and more than, in my, than, than, than is my way, I curb my intelligence. I restrain my intelligence, lest it runs on where virtue fails to guide it. It's, Dante does not conceive 
of an intelligence can, that can run without being under the control of the restraint of what he called virtue, that is, of goodness. Because, he says, lest, lest it runs where virtue fails to guide him. So that if friendly star or something better still has granted me its boon, it doesn't misuse the gift. Dante himself is afraid that he, with this intelligence he might end up by being, by, in, a, in a sense, damaging himself. By doing exactly what Horkamir uh, um, Adorno describes at the very beginning, burning themselves with their own intelligence. Yeah, so how do you react to this? What are we to do? What are we going to do with our culture, with our intelligence? There is no way of escaping it. It is, a, 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 in a sense, the tragedy of Ulysses, and this is the greatness of the episode of Ulysses in Dante's opinion. Um, well, I think that we've got some <laughs> order. <laughs> Right, so we have to finish here, so please join me in uh, thanking